the History Channel original podcast. The cheers of the crowd almost muffle the three shots. The assassin's aim is deadly. The area is a swarm with police, rangers, and secret service men. The murderer slips the net. But a few blocks away, a man is captured after he is reported to have killed a policeman. That man is a 24-year-old pro-Castro Texan who once sought Soviet citizenship. 12.58 p.m., 28 minutes after the murder of President Kennedy, a white car pulls up to the Texas School Book Depository carrying a man by the name of John Will Fritz. Captain Fritz is in his 60s. He's wearing dark-brimmed glasses and a Stetson hat, part of the unofficial uniform of the group he created, the Homicide and Robbery Bureau for Dallas PD. Detectives on the scene are on high alert. The shooter, they believe, is still inside the building. Fritz grabs a shotgun and leads them inside to search. Here's Dale Myers, the author of With Malice. The plan was to start at the top floor and work their way down and start to clear the various floors. And it was while he was there that they discovered shells under a southeastern corner window of the sixth floor. They immediately called the crime lab. And while they were investigating in that area, they did find a rifle tucked behind some boxes. The crime lab arrived. Captain Fritz was there when they lifted the rifle out of its hiding place. Uh, They ejected one live round from the uh, gun and uh, began dusting it for uh, prints. The rifle is cheap and commonplace, something that you could get out of a mail-order catalog. Not what you'd expect if the assassin was a foreign agent. But could it have done the job? Maybe. Fritz carefully turns the weapon over in his hands. In the meantime, the building manager, Roy Truly, approached him and said, we've got an employee here that's missing. It's Lee Oswald lives in Irving, here's his address. By this time, it's clear to Fritz that the shooter, if he were ever in the building, is long gone. He decides to focus on the employee who had gone missing. He gestures to two of his detectives to follow as he heads for the stairs. At around 2 p.m., Fritz arrives at the homicide department on the third floor of the Dallas police headquarters. He addresses a detective on duty. Captain Fritz walks in. I want you to get two officers and go out to Irving and pick up this Lee Oswald. And the officers say, what was that name again, Captain? He says, Lee Oswald. He goes, well, we can save you the trip. That's him right there. There in the police station, sitting quietly in a holding room, is a small man with a receding hairline, Lee Harvey Oswald. I'm historian Steve Gillen. This is 24 hours after the JFK assassination. Episode 5, The Detective. In our last episode, we told the story of Lee Oswald, the ex-Marine and Soviet defector arrested for the murder of President Kennedy. Today, we focus on Captain Fritz, the detective who will have to prove Oswald's guilt. The task in front of Fritz is enormous. He needs to reassure the public that the city is secure, He needs to show federal law enforcement that the Dallas PD is up to the task. And he'll have to solve the biggest case of his career under an intense media spotlight, as his reputation and legacy hang in the balance. He won't have weeks or months to obtain Oswald's confession. Instead, he'll have just hours before the prisoner is removed from his jurisdiction forever. And the clock is already ticking. 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Two p.m. Inside the homicide and robbery department, Captain Fritz stands in stunned silence. How is it possible that his primary suspect is already in police custody? Oswald has been picked up in connection with another murder that day, the killing of police officer J.D. Tibbet. So you can imagine for the police, here's a police shooting that happens, a very rare police shooting, happens within 45 minutes of the assassination of the president. And the guy that's arrested for it is an employee at the Texas Book Depository. They knew right then they had the prime suspect in the Kennedy assassination. Fritz frowns. The president is killed in front of Oswald's workplace. He disappears from the scene. Then he's implicated in a shooting two miles away? It can't be a coincidence. Detectives bring Oswald to Fritz's office, flanking him on either side. And at 2.25 p.m., Fritz begins to interrogate him. If there was anyone who could get Oswald to confess, it was J.W. Fritz. He was maybe the most respected law enforcement investigator uh, in the entire Southwest. He was the head of a homicide for 34 years. During that period of time, he had a 98% conviction rate solving crimes, homicides. Early in his career, Fritz had helped hunt down Bonnie and Clyde. He was renowned as an interrogator. As legend had it, he once coerced a murder confession out of a suspect over the phone. Not to mention, Fritz had a personal stake in this investigation. The day of the assassination, Captain Fritz uh, was actually in charge of security at the trademark where President Kennedy was to give a luncheon address. And so he was there at that location at the time the shooting happened. Fritz confidently sizes up the handcuffed man across from him. He'd outwitted countless suspects over his decades of service. If history was any indication, he'd have Oswald's confession in short order. What's your name, son? Fritz asks. Fritz likes to begin interrogations informally to make suspects feel they can lower their guard. And so he asks a series of softball questions, establishing basic details, until Oswald begins to complain. I think I'm being treated very unfairly here today, he says. I got a bad cut over my eye where the policeman hit me, and I don't like having my hands pinned behind my back this way. Fritz senses an opportunity to ingratiate himself. He directs his officers to cuff Oswald's hands in front so they can rest in his lap. This small gesture seems to have the intended effect. Oswald becomes more cooperative as the men converse. But then, everything goes sideways. Before we continue, it's worth asking, why were the Dallas police running this investigation? Why not the Secret Service or the FBI? Well, oddly enough, it was not a federal crime at that time to shoot the president of the United States. So this was a local crime. This was a local murder. In the eyes of the law, it's just another murder. And so authority rests with local officials, including Captain Fritz. 
but in the eyes of the world, this murder is anything but ordinary. It could be the start of something much, much bigger. And so the FBI assigns an agent by the name of James Hostie to keep an eye on the investigation. At 3.15 p.m., Hostie enters Fritz's office. As soon as he introduces himself, Oswald explodes in anger, slamming his hands down on the table in front of him. So you're Hostie. You're the man who's been harassing my wife. This is the first time Agent Hostie and Lee Oswald have ever laid eyes on each other. But the men are far from strangers. Lee Oswald is a Soviet defector. While the government had allowed him to return to the U.S. in 1962, they suspected that he could be a Russian spy. In their drive for world domination, the communists have identified different levels of possible conflict to exploit. And so the FBI and Agent Hostie had been surveilling Oswald for months. A few weeks before the assassination, Hostie had paid a visit to the home where Oswald's wife Marina was staying. He was looking for Oswald, but since he wasn't there, Hostie briefly questioned her instead. Have your husband call me, he tells Marina. Oswald never does, but based on his reaction now, in Fritz's office, it's clear the message was received. Fritz is surprised by Oswald's outburst, and even more by what it means. Oswald has a relationship with the FBI? Perhaps there is more going on here than Fritz thought. In fact, there's a lot more. Fritz doesn't know it, but Agent Hostie is carrying with him some secret and very troubling intelligence. A few weeks earlier, Oswald had sent a letter to the Soviet embassy in Washington. That letter had been intercepted by the FBI, and what it revealed was alarming. Oswald had recently traveled to Mexico City. While he was there, he had visited the Cuban embassy and met with the KGB, including the official in charge of political assassinations in the Western Hemisphere. Here's Larry Sabato, director of the University of Virginia Center for Politics. The assassin of a president is going to visit the Cuban embassy and the Russian embassy in Mexico City six or seven weeks before the assassination. What was he doing? Well, it's clear that he, he wanted to get out again. I mean, he was so mixed up. When he was in the U.S., he wanted to be in Cuba or Russia. When he was in Russia, he wanted to be back in the U.S. He was never satisfied. He was never happy. And that's what makes that trip so interesting, because we only know bits and pieces about what he did. Why had Oswald gone to Mexico? Was the shooting of JFK a communist plot? If so, what were they planning next? These are the questions on Hostie's mind as he steps into Fritz's office that afternoon. But now is not the time to ask them. He gestures for Fritz to proceed. In short order, Fritz verifies what he already knows. Oswald recently started working at the depository. He has access to the sixth floor where the rifle was recovered. He establishes that Oswald left the building after the shooting. Oswald's excuse? He didn't think there'd be any more work to do that day. When asked, Oswald denies that he owns a rifle, that he had shot the president, or that he had shot Officer Tippett. Fritz learns that Oswald had lived in Russia and was married to a Russian national. How long were you in Russia, Fritz asks. Why don't you ask Hostie, Oswald replies with contempt. He can probably tell you everything you want to know about me. 
Fritz is beginning to lose his patience. The presence of the FBI agent is clearly agitating Oswald. And an angry suspect was going to be much more difficult to crack. Captain Fritz had this incredible ability to be able to get a prisoner to confess to the deed they had done. But you had the FBI, you had the Secret Service, you had the Texas Rangers, you had the Sheriff's Department, you had all kinds of other people, both federal and local investigators, that were in the room. You can't have an interrogation with a prisoner when you've got six people in the room. He tries a new line of questions about Oswald's trip to Mexico. But before Fritz can make much progress, he's interrupted again. We're ready for a lineup, says the detective at the door. The clock reads 4.05 p.m. At 4.30, Oswald is transported to a basement identification room where he'll be placed in a lineup. Fritz has an eyewitness to the Tibbet murder that he hopes can ID him. Police headquarters, normally a sleepy place, has been transformed. Photographers and reporters crowd the halls, yelling questions, snapping pictures. TV crews with enormous video cameras have set up camp, with their long wires snaking through the hallways. It's like Grand Central Station. I asked Jim Lavelle, detective, uh, the homicide detective, what was it like? And the way he described it, he said, have you ever seen slop thrown at pigs? He says, that's what it looked like. It was like you threw down the slop and these reporters are running all over. So they're bringing in these big, giant cameras, and the uh, public relations manager of the Dallas Police Department is allowing this to happen. Now, they should have been way more control, but it was total chaos. Nobody seemed to be in charge. There's nobody checking security. I don't think anybody really saw the danger as much as it was more confusion. It was annoying because of the confusion, not so much it was dangerous. And of course, it turned out to be very dangerous. In the basement, Oswald is finally searched for the first time. Officers confiscate five 38 caliber bullets from his left pants pocket. It's the same type of ammo that was recovered from the Tippett murder scene. Normally, the police would use other prisoners to fill out a lineup. But because of the nature of the crime, Fritz is worried for Oswald's safety. And so he asks a few police department employees to join Oswald in the lineup. Just after 4.30, officers escort an eyewitness into the viewing room. Her name is Helen Markham. She had been walking to a bus stop when she saw a man fitting Oswald's description shoot Officer Tippett. The first lineup they hold is for Helen Markham, who is an absolute basket case because she just saw somebody shot to death right in front of her eyes. When she's brought down to the assembly room where they're going to hold the lineup, Oswald comes out with four other individuals, and he's the second man that comes out. As soon as he comes out, she said she felt a wave of cold chills roll across her and she began to cry. That's a visceral reaction. That's the subconscious. That's your physical being reacting to the person you just saw. Her body is telling her that's the guy. Without hesitation, Markham identifies Oswald as the shooter. Oswald is escorted back to a holding cell. Walking through the hallways, he passes once again to the crowd of reporters and onlookers. In the crowd is a local nightclub owner by the name of Jack Ruby. Ruby watches for a moment before disappearing from sight. By 7 p.m., six and a half hours after the assassination, Captain Fritz is confident that he has caught his killer, not of JFK, 
but of Officer Tibbet. He has now interrogated Oswald three times, as well as Oswald's wife and mother, and the evidence in the Tippett shooting is just piling up. Oswald was identified in a lineup by Helen Markham. Multiple other witnesses placed him at the scene, dropping shell casings in the grass as he fled. The pistol recovered from Oswald in the Texas theater uses the same ammunition recovered from the Tippett murder scene. Fritz is confident that when more forensic evidence comes in, the pistol will be confirmed as the murder weapon. And so at 7.10 p.m., Fritz signs a formal complaint charging Oswald with the murder of J.D. Tippett. But there's a problem. President Kennedy wasn't killed with a pistol. It appears he was killed with a rifle, and as of now, Fritz can't prove that the rifle recovered from the book depository belongs to Lee Oswald. And there's other holes in the case. He has no solid eyewitnesses that can place Oswald on the sixth floor at the time of the shooting. There also doesn't appear to be an obvious motive. But pressure is mounting on the police to announce that they have a suspect in custody. Washington is in touch asking for updates. And the media is relentless, crowding the halls and shouting questions to Fritz whenever he walks past. So at 11.26, after extensive discussion, Fritz and the Dallas PD decide to charge Lee Harvey Oswald with the assassination of President Kennedy. Now all Fritz needs to do is to prove it. Shortly after midnight, the Dallas police hold a press conference to announce that they've arrested the man who killed President Kennedy just 12 hours earlier. The conference is short and chaotic. The press shout questions to Oswald, asking if he's killed the president. Oswald denies it. He's a patsy, he says. Then he's carted away. When he's leaving the assembly room, a reporter says, uh, how'd you get that cut on your eye? And he leans down to the, to the microphone and says, a policeman hit me. Well, he doesn't mention that he just shot a cop in cold blood and then pulled a gun on the cops that are arresting him at the Texas theater. So he's playing it up. He was like the cat that swallowed the canary. He really was enjoying this moment in the spotlight. A lot of people have said, well, oh, he did it to be famous. I would say this. He'd been kicked around his whole life. Nobody really took him seriously his whole life. And I think he really saw this as a chance to prove to the world that I'm somebody to be reckoned with. He's going to enjoy watching them squirm and try and figure out the puzzle. And eventually, maybe he figured he'd get his day in court and he'd get a chance to say why he really did it. And of course, that never happened. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Saturday, November 23rd. Captain Fritz returns to work to find some good news. Overnight, the FBI has connected Oswald to the murder weapon. They found the mail order receipt for the rifle. It had been shipped to a post office box in Dallas rented by Oswald. It's a major break. And as the day goes on, Fritz's officers uncover more incriminating evidence in the home of Ruth Payne. Lee's wife, Marina, is living with Ruth, and some of Lee's possessions have been stored in Ruth's garage. Among his belongings, they find the negatives of the so-called backyard rifle photos. Those are the photos that he had his wife, Marina Oswald, take of him back in April, of him holding the rifle and wearing the pistol strapped in a holster on his belt. It couldn't be any clearer. Photographs of Oswald posing with the same model rifle that was recovered from the school book depository. And of course, this is very damning evidence. So they blow up one of the photos into an eight by 10. The originals are these little three and a half by five inch snapshots. And they bring him down for one of the interrogations. On Saturday evening, Fritz brings Oswald to his office for a third time. The stakes are high. Fritz knows that the next morning, Oswald will be transferred to the county jail and out of his oversight. If he's going to get a confession, it needs to happen now. On top of that, Fritz is starting to run out of options. He had interviewed Oswald's colleagues and family. He had paraded him in front of multiple lineups. He had searched Oswald's apartment and Ruth Payne's garage. If these photographs couldn't turn the tide, Fritz doesn't have many other cards up his sleeve. Fritz begins the interrogation with a reminder. Oswald has steadfastly maintained that he did not own a rifle. So how do you explain this, he asks, showing Oswald the enlarged photograph. Oswald claims the images are fake. Somebody has taken my picture and that is my face and put a different body on it. I know all about photography, he brags. I worked with photography for a long time. That is a picture someone else made. I never saw that picture in my life. What Fritz had hoped would be Oswald's confession instead turns into an argument about photography. After 45 minutes, Fritz gives up. They show him the rifle photos. They don't get him to confess. They decide, all right, well, we'll let him sleep overnight. We'll wake him up Sunday morning. We'll do one little last interrogation, one, one more effort to crack him, and, and then let's, uh, let's send him down to the county jail. As it turns out, Oswald would never leave the building alive. Madness and hate erupt anew in Dallas as President Kennedy's accused assassin is shot down himself during a jail transfer. On Sunday morning, before Oswald's transfer to county jail, Jack Ruby is waiting in line at Western Union. He's there to wire money to a stripper who works at his nightclub. Out of respect for the president, Ruby closed his club for the weekend. And as a result, his employees are running short of cash. Here's Larry Sabato. Jack Ruby was a small-time criminal from Chicago who had made his way, and he hoped to make his fortune, in the Dallas area. And sure enough, he had saved enough or got enough investment money from others to open up uh, one sizable strip club uh, in, uh, in Dallas. Ruby was well-known to Dallas police. He would often stop by headquarters to invite officers to his club, 
and to try to curry good relations. This was at a time when strip clubs were not necessarily welcome, even in big cities, and certainly not in the South. Uh, but he had an interesting method. He, he made sure the police had easy and free access, and he often gave them free food. Uh, so they were appreciative, and he generally wasn't shut down or, or brought in on morals charges. As he leaves Western Union, Ruby can see commotion at police headquarters just a half block away. A crowd is gathered for the transfer of Oswald to another jail. Ruby pauses. He's eager to investigate, but his dog Sheba is in the car. After a moment of indecision, he heads toward the building for a quick look. As he is taken to the city jail basement where an armored car is to move him to a maximum security cell, Oswald walks his last mile. As it happens, the basement ceiling is too low for the armored truck. It gets stuck in the entrance ramp. They'll need to find another way to transport Oswald. The truck is forced to back out into traffic, so the guard leaves his post to help the driver. He doesn't notice that Jack Ruby is slipping behind him through the basement entrance. Ruby finds the basement filled with reporters and photographers. TV cameras are already broadcasting, waiting for the suspect to arrive. Since the armored truck is no longer an option, the police have decided that Oswald will be transferred in Captain Fritz's own white, unmarked car. They're bringing it around when Oswald is escorted by officers into the basement hallway. He doesn't get far. His assailant moves in from the right. Jack Ruby leaps from the crowd, firing a pistol into Oswald's stomach. He's immediately tackled to the ground, but the damage is done. Oswald slumps to the floor, his face white. He's rushed to Parkland Hospital, the same place where President Kennedy had been treated two days earlier. He's pronounced dead at 1.07 p.m., 48 hours and 37 minutes after allegedly shooting the president. He never confessed. page in the annals of America has been written to the crack of an assassin's bullet. A nation mourns, the world grieves. The man who became 35th president less than three years ago is dead. The assassination of JFK was hard enough for the public to comprehend. The death of his killer would only heighten the sense of chaos in the country. For the Dallas police and for the legendary Captain Fritz, it was a humiliation on top of a humiliation. Two tragedies, perhaps avoidable, right under their nose. For J.W. Fritz, kind of a sad end. He never lived down the fact that even though he solved 98% of the cases that he was assigned to, that he didn't crack Oswald, and they basically put him out to pasture and made him the night manager of the police department. The murder of Lee Oswald robbed America of the chance to learn the truth about the Kennedy assassination. And the strange circumstances of his death gave birth to countless conspiracy theories. What you really need to understand, to understand why we're still talking about the Kennedy assassination is that this was the most suspicious arrangement that had ever happened. I still recall watching television on that Sunday when Oswald was shot. 
and watching him being shot live. And the first thing my father said was, they've killed Oswald. It wasn't, he's killed Oswald, or that man just killed Oswald. It was, they've killed Oswald. And that's what everyone said. Because at that point, believing this whole thing was Lee Harvey Oswald and then Jack Ruby alone was really stretching credulity for most people. Did Oswald kill JFK on orders from the Soviets or Cuba? The suspicions were strong enough that Oswald's body was actually exhumed in 1981, just to make sure the corpse buried in his coffin was really his. Was Jack Ruby a mafia hitman, the final piece in a plot against Bobby Kennedy, sent to keep Oswald from squealing? Officials would later conclude that Ruby's act was merely a spontaneous crime of passion. It was not a premeditated murder. It was just Jack Ruby popping off. And Jack Ruby was just a hothead who did, and this is something they'll always remember, who did what a lot of people would have wanted to do at that time. What is indisputable is that many Americans applauded the actions of Jack Ruby. Fan mail poured in thanking him. He had gotten justice for President Kennedy, justice that went beyond what J.W. Fritz could ever have delivered. As for JFK's friends, family, and colleagues, they were processing their grief even as the country was moving forward. Lyndon Johnson was trying to jumpstart his administration. Jackie Kennedy was planning a funeral. And caught in the middle were JFK's closest aides, a group sometimes referred to as the Irish Mafia. In the hours after the assassination, they'll face difficult choices that will radically impact the future of the JFK agenda and his legacy. That's next time on 24 Hours After. Thanks for listening to 24 Hours After, a History Channel original produced by Awfully Nice and hosted by me, Steve Gillen. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. Special thanks to our guests, Dale Myers and Larry Sabato. 24 Hours After is written and produced by Jesse Burton and Jane Ackerman. Editing and sound design by Bang Audio Post. Our project manager is Kadi Kamikate. Our supervising producers are McKamey Lynn and Ben Dixing. Our executive producers are Jesse Burton, Katie Hodges, Jesse Katz, and me, Steve Gillen. Special thanks to The Cutting Room and Haga Studios. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review 24 Hours After wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.